Hello and welcome along to our special edition 2018 World Cup preview podcast here on The World Game. I'm your host, Lucy Zellich, and joining me in the studio, it's a very warm welcome to SBS commentator David Bashir. Bashola, great to have you. Hey, Lucy, how are you going? Going very, very well. So much to discuss. And alongside of him is SBS Chief Football Analyst Craig Foster. Fozinho, great to have your company. Morning, guys. There is a lot to talk about, uh, but we're going to start uh, initially now with the final squad that's been announced. And uh, Bash, I'll head over to you first. Your thoughts initially. I reckon he's got it spot on. I, you know, I'm so glad that um, uh, J-Mac uh, McLaren got in. I, I think he deserved his spot. Um, I think uh, Karacic, it was obvious he, he didn't have confidence on what he saw in camp in Turkey to play him there. Rizdan did enough against a, a depleted Czech Republic lineup. it must be said. But I, I think he's got it about spot on. He had to take Tim Cahill. Um, there's good signs for Australia. I think he's got his selection spot on. Had to take Tim Cahill, Foz. Why? Because he offers something, even at his advanced years, that no one else can give. Um, and I think he understands that we will need him in the, either the game against Denmark or Peru in the last 30 minutes when we need to try and get the points that we need. So I think all you need out of Tim in those three games is one really decisive goal, actually. And I think Van Marwijk just saying, OK, in those two games, likely to get 20, 30 minutes, just depending on how the game is. But in one of them, all he needs is to get a couple of balls in the box. He gets a, a key goal, gets us the three points that we need to get out of the group. And I get the feeling that Tim will do it in one of those games. Another notable entry that has made the final uh, cut bash is Daniel Arzani. So much hype and discussion around him um, in this A-League season, but so many people actually pushing for him to be included in this squad. Uh, great to see that he did make it. It had to take him, absolutely had to take him. You block Iran out, you you put him forward to the, the Asian Cup. You, he, he could be a game changer in 15, 20 minutes against Denmark or Peru. He's that type of player. He's got a different element to his game than any other player in that Australian squad has. Untested at that level, understood. Um, I understand all the negatives towards Daniel Arzani, but the positives far outweigh the negatives. And I just hope he gets. I hope he gets serious time in this World Cup. I saw that you put up a tweet, uh, and I'll just mention the players that did uh, not make the cut. It was Nikita Rukovica, James Troisi, Fran Karacic, which you mentioned, Bash, and um, Josh Brillante. Uh, you touched on Troisi not making it. Yeah. More disappointed for him, but understanding he hasn't had the greatest of seasons. And I, I, when I said I think he got his selection right, I'd much rather see Naboot and Petrados at this World Cup given the future of the Australian team. I, I just think we know what we get with Tracy. Um, and he is a big match. You know, he scored a great goal against Chile. He's, he, you know, he, he scored the winning goal in the Asian Cup. So we, we know what he can do. Um, I, I just think uh, Petrados and Naboot have shown that they deserve their, their place in the 23. I want to touch on the starting 11 that uh, Van Marwijk put together against uh, the Czech Republic. So in goals, you had Matty Ryan, obviously, the two central defenders, Milligan and Sainsbury, then Risden on the right, Beach on the left. In the midfield, you had Moy, Rogic and Luongo. Up top, Lecky, Naboot and Cruz. Foz, how much of this do you, of this particular starting eleven, do you expect to change in the group stages of the World Cup, namely the the first game against France? Well, assuming everyone stays fit, which never happens, um, I wouldn't expect it to change much. I think that back four is going to stay. Um, the centre midfield and perhaps the number nine are the two areas where he's got issues. Um, he's got Leckie and Cruz. He knows they've got experience. Um, he knows that they can give good forward thrust. They've got the speed necessary. Matthew's got some goal-scoring form as well. Uh, up front, Naboot was a, a, an interesting call from him, and I thought a good one. Um, and that's also down to the style of play because he knows teams are going to force us into our back third a lot. And so what you need is you need the quickest number nine you can possibly get. If you don't threaten in behind people, like France, for instance, um, it really quickly, within a couple of passes, then they're just going to sit with their their foot on your throat, so to speak. So we need to get out of our half, and he knows he needs speed up front. right? So that's why Naboot is there. And then he added a goal as well, which was nice, um, and give him a lot of confidence as well as us and the fans. Centre midfield's an interesting one. Uh, whether he... And there's a lot of variables there. So did he recognise that the Czechs didn't really have too much in that area, therefore he didn't really need a central midfielder like Yedinak, for instance? Mille might also need a rest, so he gives an opportunity opportunity to play a combination that he might play in one of the games. He also did arrive to camp late. Yep, so um, the issue there is um, that he's got two good footballers, if you like, at the base of midfield. One is more mobile, which is Massimo, who can get forward in the moments when we have a little bit of possession. 
Um, uh, however, in the first 30 minutes of that game, which in my mind was the most realistic, was when the Czechs were fresh enough. And after that, they then started to tire. And by the second half, in, to my mind, they could barely run. And, and that's normal because we're playing. It's interesting to me we've taken the opportunity to play two teams and not in the World Cup. So if we, if we look at, uh, for instance, Peru playing Saudi Arabia, look at England playing Nigeria, Sweden playing Denmark, most of the other, a lot of the other countries are playing other nations from other groups, and that's a much sterner test. And it, that's, if you're going to do that, that means you're going to have to be at World Cup level, whereas, I don't know, if it was it Van Marwijk who scheduled these games? Probably wasn't. They've probably done before that. Um, I would wonder whether he would have wanted in this last game, not a Hungary, but someone from one of the other groups so it that seems, we get a real test. seems more logical, doesn't it, Foz? Well, this one, this one worked well because um, it wasn't a real Czech team in that, in that respect. Um, however, it's great for confidence building. So what a new coach needs to balance both. One is to get the players at a level performing their roles against a team that he's going to match of the quality, the speed and the intensity for the whole 90 minutes. But he has to balance that with a new system of play, getting people comfortable, playing together in different roles, and you don't want to then go and play against a really strong one, lose 3-0 like Saudis have done, um, also under a new coach, right? And all of a sudden, belief is not as strong. So the Czech game worked for us really well, but we need to recognise, and he, he knows it, that um, we need more from Hungary, and I don't think we're going to get it, quite frankly. So we're going to go into the France game now confident, but not quite uh, battle-hardened against another team who's been in camp ready to go. Foz mentioned there that uh, the de- the defence is very likely to stay the same, but also now you throw in Matt Yerman, who has been called into the squad. He has suffered a bit of injury. Do you expect that there's the potential that he'll get deployed in that central defensive position and that Mark Milligan could then return to playing somewhere in the midfield mm. bash? I don't think Milligan is playing as well as he was a couple of years ago with the Socceroos. That's my view. And I think Matt Yerman's a better choice at centre at centre back with uh, Sainsbury. That's, that's my view. I think um, Millsy offers that flexibility. I don't think he's quite at the level he was. So it's not gonna, he, he's not a good foil for Yedinak in that position because they, don't, they both don't have great pace at the moment. So, you, you know, Foz talks about getting him behind. You know, Yedinak's going to be a stay-at-home number six for that first game because we need as much cover defensively as we, we possibly can against France. Um, whether that allows a different combination for Denmark and Peru, that d- determines really on the, the first result we get. Um, but uh, I'd much rather see Yerman. I, I think if he can return to the form that he, he had been in, I think he's a better choice than uh, Millsy at centre-half. What were your impressions of the Socceroos' performance against the Czechs? Um, I thought there was positives. I, I do agree um, with Foz that the Czechs weakened in the second half, so it sort of made it made it a bit of a false economy, in a sense. I, I would have expected a little bit more from Tom Rogic in the first half, given that was probably the more... the, the sort of the simulation of pressure he's going to face at the World Cup, and I think he's not quite doing it at the moment for the, the ability he's got. And that gives the opportunity for someone like Daniel Arzani if he's thinking about another option. Uh, you know, we need a lot more from Tom Rogic in those pressure situations, and I don't think we're getting it. The positives and the negatives of the performance against the Czech Republic, Foz, and what lessons you took out of it? So it's clear now the way he plays. Um, so, um, you know, we are no longer a pressing team. So, in other words, if you divide the pitch into thirds, back third, mid third, front third, as the coaches do, we were a front third team, i.e. we want to keep you there when we have the ball and we also want to keep you there when we don't have the ball. Okay, so the idea of that type of play, which which happens to be the one I prefer, um, is that we try and keep you there the entire time and then what happened is the, the main issue we've got is against the counter-attack. But you need to be very good with the ball, you need to be comfortable, patient with the ball. There's a whole, whole range of different... Um, aspects that you need to have to be that type of team. We've now gone from there, not to the back third, which you would then call a defensive coach or a defensive style of play means we sit in our back third and we like to be there and counter. Some teams do so. We're now in the mid third of the field. That's what I would say standard for most teams around the world. For instance, Italy did it the other day against France. Um, Sweden and Denmark both did it. Um, it's, It's a... 
depends on what your, your approach is. To me, it's a cautious style of play, but really it's balanced. That means it's not defensive and it's not attacking, okay? So the idea is that you can sit in the middle third of the field and very much like the third goal, I think it was for Australia where, or the second and third, but more like the third, where they're trying to play through you, you're in the central area of the field, you block passing lines, stay nice and compact. Then my... Um, Checks then make a, a pass into midfield when they, they switch off momentarily. Someone makes a poor decision. You're hoping that the three on four of the opponents aren't particularly brilliant on the ball, which probably 70% of the time is the case. Um, you know, your best players are in midfield and often um, the wingers and attackers. And all of a sudden, their number three, their right side of central defender, gives us the ball in midfield to Moy. And you, you snap on the ball, you intercept it, bang, within three passes you arrive on goal and score. That's the whole objective for Australia now. When we lose the ball, we come and sit back in the mid-third. Um, the reason being is because a coach like Van Marwijk doesn't want to press high because he's, he, he doesn't feel comfortable in the fact that they can play through us and there's a lot of space in behind, even though Matty Ryan's one of the, the most aggressive sweeping keepers. Um, one of them probably in the World Cup, but we won't use him in that manner. The, f the final part point is that when we build from the back, so we're no longer a pressing team and we're no longer a possession team. So what happens is we want to play forward reasonably quickly. Matty's not to really um, play too many passes in the back third. We need to get the ball forward into the forward midfield areas as quickly as possible so that they can't do to us what we're trying to do to them. So the issue for us then becomes if people do, do press us, which France will, well, actually, they might, France might sit in the middle of the pitch and say, well, you guys bring the ball up because we don't think you're very good at doing that. And then yeah. they might get it and go. <laughs> yeah. Or they then at times they might press us, in which case Matty has to go long. And then it's a question of who's going to get that contested ball and um, we can struggle to get out. So the negative for me is that in the first 30 minutes, let me start with the positive. The positive is that he, Van Marwijk demonstrated in camp that he can at least, at least coach some movements in attack. And I wasn't sure he could do that. So, in other words, our first two games with the ball were just horrible. Uh, it was like, okay, it's like many of the Dutch coaches, everyone's just standing out in their zones. The idea is just fling the ball around as quickly as we possibly can, try and find Rogic. If it didn't happen, we were in trouble and people are going at us, right? Now, all of a sudden, wingers coming inside. Um, they're, with, they're with Rogic. We've got them plus Naboot, um, plus Luongo sometimes. So we've got four, sometimes five in the centre of midfield trying yeah. to find little spaces. And fullbacks getting out. Fullbacks then can use that space wide. Mm. And it's very, what you would say, standard methodology of most of the average European teams right now. Okay? There's nothing new. That was never going to happen. He doesn't really have the time to introduce that anyway, I guess. Um, but we're doing pretty much now what just about everyone else is doing, aside from the top teams or the really aggressive ones who are doing something different like Chile. Yeah, so everyone will understand it. It won't be difficult to analyse. Um, it'll be a question of whether we get counter-attack. So now the negative. In the first 30 minutes against Czech when the game was real, um, they got at us twice on the transition and Matty made two good saves. So that can't happen. So the idea is if we're going to be, if they if they drop to the centre third of the field, now we're relying on Milligan and Sainsbury to start the game and we can't do what Czechs did, that is give the ball away into central midfield. Um, if we do, they demonstrated that we lack that little bit of speed and all of a sudden they got three players forward really, really quickly and our France will do that. The other, the really big issue that I see and that I am quite concerned about is that that style of play, by not pressing and by coming back to the central third of the field, what tip, what happens is we give France the ball. And we say, OK, we're going to try and stay here, but if you're good enough, you can force us back. Now, when Denmark forced our uh, checks, when the checks forced us back on the edge of our box, all they did most of the time was just whip crosses in. And Sainsbury looked like Beckenbauer heading them out, right? The French aren't going to do that, and nor are Peru. So if you look to Peru, Saudi Arabia... Combinations. Yeah. So mm. today, what was the, the second goal, I think it was? A little, on the edge of the box, a little forward run, chip over, little uh, first touch back, shot, rebound, bang, gone. All of a sudden, that gets very difficult to defend. And look at our fourth mm. goal. So now we're on top of the checks, and Degenek gets forward. He puts what's an extremely average crossing. In fact, he's falling over when he does it. <laughs> and yet... Because it's coming from inside the penalty area, the margin for error is zero. Therefore, it just comes off someone and goes in. Mm. So I always get really worried when we're sitting on the edge of their box and saying to France or anyone else, you try and break us down because we're not Italy. 
in that respect. It's not what we understand. It's not what we do particularly well, and I think rightly so. So that's basically a breakdown. Um, I'm not sure how Hungary are going to approach it, but the issue is if we get back on the edge of our box against France or Peru, not so much the Danes, um, then we're going to need a lot of luck and we're going to need Matty to be in great form to not concede. Having said that, can I just say about the World Cup generally, it's about time we start talking about getting out of the group regularly now. This is our fourth consecutive World Cup. I know we changed coach, but these guys, what, half of these guys? I don't know, you have to go through squad bash, but half of them won the Asian Cup, played against top teams in the Confederations Cup last year, got a good result against Chile. There's no fear here anymore. We look at Denmark and we analyse them. We don't look and say these these average European nations have not been... Uh, have not drawn any fear from us from a very long time, and certainly not now. Um, Peru have a lot to offer, but there's no fear anymore. You know, Milligan is experienced, Yednak's experienced. Um, so many of these guys now have actually played in a World Cup, played in big tournaments. That's the difference from our generations. We, we should be... Um, it's not a question of confidence. Um, I'm optimistic, but the thing is we should be in a position where getting out of this group is extremely achievable, and I believe it is. Bash, anything to add to that? No, agree, disagree? I agree with most of it, and I think I think the system that he plays does not really suit Tom Rogic, his sensibilities as a footballer, and that's one of the negatives with, with the Van Marwijk system. But um, he, that's the way he coaches. That's the way he coaches. So he will invite danger against France. He will have opportunities against Denmark and how it will play out against Peru will, it will just be, uh, you know, dependent on the situation at that point. But no, nothing much to add. I, I think I just hope defensively we can get it right because the first match is so key against France. If we can't get our defensive shape right in that particular match, then we saw what France did to Italy. We're seeing what they have been able to achieve. Uh, it is very much a mentality thing. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, but you know, I've noticed Deschamps' comments um, were not even Griezmann saying we're not. We, we play nice football, but we're not bad enough to win the World Cup. As in bad enough, the mentality's not bad enough. Um, uh, you know, Deschamps urged um, Pogba to become a leader at this World Cup. He's questioned their ability to finish off teams in World Cup qualifying. All these things are relevant to the first match because France play a lot of a very attractive, beautiful football, but their ability to kill off their opposition is not as ruthless as some of the other big nations in the World Cup. So and is that a mentality issue, Bash? It is, absolutely, absolutely. And that's the, that's the missing link for France. That That's the missing link. Whether we can exploit that enough, Australia remains to be seen. We know that traditionally they are slow starters at a tournament, but when you consider the score that they do have, just to rattle off a couple of names, and these players very prominent in the match against uh, Italy the other day, Mbappe, Griezmann, Dembele, they are looking very ferocious, Foz going forward. How do we deal with them? Are there weak points aside from the mentality that Bash has cited there? Well, the thing about it is the, the talent is not always the performance. So have a look at um, Germany against Austria only two days ago. Okay, And the thing about it is that's an extremely strong German team who are current world champions and who've wiped everyone off the floor in all of qualifications. And they got outplayed because Austria were brave. Um, Austria actually played a, a, a 5-4-1 or a 3-4-3, did it exceptionally well and played them off the park, actually. And the Germans were surprised. Yeah, they're surprised because these, ex these nations expect to beat them, just like France expect to beat us. So there's two ways to approach it. One is to say, oh, Jesus, you know, these guys are just an unbelievable group, which they are, and therefore we can't do anything, we're going to see it and da-da-da. And my view is we invite pressure, and um, very similar to um, Germany 2010, you're inviting them to create a lot of chances and you need a tremendous amount of good fortune to get through. And that can happen. Matty might have an unbelievable game, but that's a big, big risk. Or the other way is to say, we've been, this is our fourth World Cup and, and fifth in total. It's our fourth consecutive, right? We don't really care who it is. We think that a well-organised team like Australia, um, and we can play. People get pessimistic about the team always. What, what, what always fascinates me is they go, well, the players aren't, if, they don't, if we don't have a good performance, go, oh, the players are rubbish and we don't have the cattle. And then when they do well, they go, well, the coach is brilliant. He's doing a fantastic job. <laughs> That's what happens. So we go and beat But why, I guess the deeper question behind that is, Foz, why have we gotten to that point? And well, why, this, is, as a footballing know, nation, has that been the reaction? 
I, I, maybe it's just the, you know the history. We struggled to get there for so long. You know, we we are we are an island. We don't tend to play against these big nations enough, and so on. So. But it, it's odd how people just question the players all the time and then they and then they say, oh, yeah, but the coach is brilliant, has done a fantastic job with them. Um, the 06 generation, Hiddick did an outstanding job, was also a very, very good group. Um, the, um, you know, this group has um, Rogic, Moy, Luongo, Lecky's vast Bundesliga experience, Cruz vast Bundesliga experience, um, and it's got Sainsbury, who's a fantastic player. Mm. Mark Milligan has immense experience. He's a continental champion. Uh, and you've got Risden, who is, is doing exceptionally well, um, and you've got Bayic, who now is doing very well in Turkey. Okay, They're not donkeys. They can play. If you allow Moy, Luongo, Rogic and these guys and Lecky to start getting the right spaces and play and keep the ball, they can play. Mm. Uh, Trent Sainsbury is a very, very fine player. So, But when they beat Czechs 4-0, um, a lot of people are, oh, geez, Van Moek's a genius. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. When I see Moy and Luongo and these guys starting to pass the ball, I always think, yeah, and it happened a couple of times during Czechs, even in the first 30 minutes, I thought, oh, here we go. These guys can play. Um, so we can have more belief in them, I think, than what than uh, what most people do. Do they have enough belief, though? Oh, we I spoke about do. not playing with any fear many years yeah. ago, but do the playing squad nowadays still go into these matches without fear, Foz? Well, that depends on the guy who's in charge, actually, I think. Um, and uh, the good thing about the Czech game is it will have given them belief in the way of playing because they, they, they had to step back now rather than stepping forward. And uh, all of a sudden they'll be going, oh, well, OK, this means that we can create some chances and maybe not concede too many chances. That, that will... Um, the proof there will be against France in the first game. But the weak points, have, have they got any? Us? Uh, the, the French. Um, they're a very strong group. Um, so the weak point is inconsistency, right? So they lost against Sweden away. Are Sweden a super team? No, they're not a super team, right? You watch them against Denmark. Okay, Sweden are nothing special. We, I would expect to go very close to beating Sweden. Um, they're arguably... Um, stronger as a group actually without Ibra I can understand why they haven't taken him but um, and then they, they drew with Luxembourg at home so they clearly can be frustrated they're they're a very celebrated talented group particularly in the midfield Pogba and these guys um, who like to turn it on a little bit and if the game's not going their way they lack leaders who are able to say we need to now dig in in this game and get and really compete with Australia right all of their former French players have acknowledged that. The question is, are we going to make that happen to them or are we going to allow them to really build their rhythm in the game? And no, I don't know the answer to that. I just think that it's not good enough anymore for us to say, oh, well, you know, if we just get something out of there and then we can do it. I keep saying this is our fourth World Cup. So it's time that we started to look at this and say, OK, now getting out of the group is the minimum for us in every World Cup now. And how's Ben Marwai going to make that occur? So can he make it occur against a team like Denmark, um, Bash? Because uh, a lot of people could suggest that they're potentially our best chance at three points. Mm. Best chance, I reckon, in the group. Look, they showed without Ericsson against Sweden the other day that they were pedestrian at best. I reckon they slightly outpaid the Swedes, but um, there's negatives and positives to their team. I think with Ericsson, they've got a focal point um, in, 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 the, in the spaces that they need to create. Sisto's a very good left winger. Um, they've got um, Jorgensen, who's just a, a, a sort of a Urich-type striker who's nothing special but will do a job. But I think Sisto and Ericsson are your match winners. Um, uh, Shimon Kerr is one of the best defenders currently going around in Europe, I reckon. He's a fabulous player. Everything goes through him. He plays out... Um, his uh, Bealand, his uh, centre half partner in qualifying, is injured, so he's a late withdrawal from the squad, which means Andres Christensen will get that the nod, the Chelsea uh, defender, who's who's very tidy on the ball, but he's prone to make mistakes. And it's funny that Haraday actually preferred Bealand, who played in the Championship, over Christensen, who played the majority of the season. Uh, for Chelsea. Mm. And I, I just think he was a safer option. Christensen plays out. He, he likes to express himself. But in doing so, he'll give Australia some opportunities. Uh, they've got an issue at, in their number six position because he favours uh, William Quist, who's not a quick player, but he's been very reliable. Um, Lasse Shona has showed more consistency in the Eredivisie. He's a, he's a decent player, but he, he's not favoured by the coach. So I think there's opportunities for Australia in those central areas. If we can get on top of midfield, I reckon there'll be an opportunity to get in behind with our quicker players uh, because the centre-half pairings aren't quick. Um, and the fullback, 
uh, in in Larson, the left back is a right footer. He's not a natural left back. So that's a, a probably an area, the, the left side, their left side, our right, that we can exploit. And just this morning, the news came out on the World Game website as well that uh, the striker for Denmark, one of the strikers, Nicholas Bendner, uh, has also suffered an injury playing for Rosenberg and uh, wasn't able to train fully within the camp. Uh, so he's been hooked from there as well. Foz, I want to know, how does the approach from the game against France change against Denmark? Yeah, so what Sweden did was they did very similar to us, as did the Danes. The Danes didn't want to press a lot. They want to sit in the mid-third. And so Sweden sort of gave them the ball there. And, and the Danes were able to control a lot of the game. They play with the ball with a back three. And, um, and therefore, they like to get... Um, usually four players into the midfield area. Often their number 10 also sits higher. So they're playing sometimes like a 3-3-4 or a 3-4-3, similar to what Australia were doing up until recently. And I think that's going to in some ways suit us um, because on the counter-attack then, um, we can get the ball quickly to our wingers and all of a sudden um, get at them three or three, right? Um, so I think we could get some counter-attacks in that. I don't know if you press, if we were to press, this is what I don't know about Van Moak, and I'm interested in the Hungary game, is does he vary anything against Hungary? So, for instance, does he say for 15, 20 minutes against Hungary we're going to press them mm-hmm. all over the park? So what happens if we're losing is what we don't know at the moment. So, um, you know, we were winning against them. These first two games, we were obviously were losing against Norway, but not much changed. It was too early in his tenure. So the idea is, what is he going to show or practice against Hungary for different scenarios in a game? If we're losing against France, what are we going to do? We're just going to say, OK, well, one or two nil is enough because it's goal difference. What, okay, that might be understandable, but what happens if we're losing against Denmark? What are we going to do? Are we going to still sit in the middle third of the field or are we now going to say we've got to go and really press the game when we've got 30 minutes left? Mm. Um, so it would be nice to see that um, scenario played out against Hungary and we can get a sense of if we've got some differences in approach because I don't know what happens if you, if you um, press Denmark, but I would like to see it um, because they sat in the middle third of the field. They, they were okay getting the ball into midfield otherwise they go around with more or less wing backs um, and you don't want to be able to allow them to get the ball into Ericsson right so we'd need two number sixes in that game Mm -hmm. the question is whether we allow them to have the ball a lot and that's what we're doing to everyone at the moment Mm -hmm. my feeling if we allow France to have the ball they will push us all the way back uh, whereas Denmark I'm not quite sure I think from what I saw the only way they're able to really be able to do that is get Ericsson on the ball and he now uses other people and brings them up the field a little bit. They didn't look strong enough to me to be able to really cause too much of a problem there. Looking then at Peru. So, Bash, they beat Saudi Arabia 3-0 in a friendly. They're playing some good football. Um, We've touched on it a number of times now because we've had the chance to look at them twice when they took on Croatia and then the subsequent match against Iceland. Uh, The good news for them is that they have had their captain, Paulo Guerrero, cleared Mm. to be able to play after all of that, uh, that drama that went on. It seemed to become quite a bit of a circus in the end there, didn't it, with Wada's involvement and then, you know, then having to get fifth pro involved. But, um, you know, he is a real and was a real difference for them in that match against the Saudis. But who are the other danger men for them? Well, apart from Guerrero, I think Cueva, the, the number 10, is an excellent player. But Renato Tapia, is, he's the guy that makes them tick the number six. He's the, he just keeps everything tidy. Yotun gets on the ball and, and can deliver a diagonal pass and, and get the wingers involved. Um, but I reckon their full-backs are the key. Admin Cooler and, uh, and Trauco, the left-back, they get forward um, quite liberally. So it does allow a space in behind. Um, but they are attack-minded full-backs. So if they can get their foot on Australia's throat, they'll, they'll want to get forward and press in those areas. Um, I don't know whether their centre-half pairing is that strong, and that's exactly where New Zealand nearly got some uh, joy in that first leg. In in, uh, in Auckland in the first leg of the playoffs, so I think that's their potential weakness. But they don't have too many weaknesses. They're very well balanced. They've got very good wingers, a world class striker in Guerrero, uh, someone like Infarfun who's played at the top level in Europe. He's a, he's a terrific player. Carrillo as well. Carrillo's in form. We know what they can do in the, in those central midfield areas with those two uh, as mentioned. So I, I think the centre half pairing is the only potential weakness because I reckon they're a really. We're talking about a team that drew home and away with Argentina, beat Ecuador and Bolivia at altitude, 
unbeaten in eight matches. They are playing some terrific football at the moment. Peru are a very, very skillful team, and I think a lot more skillful than Denmark as a combination. What problems are they going to pose for us, Foz, and how do we nullify them? Yeah, the Denmark game is really the key for us, 100%, because uh, Peru, they're tough. Uh, you know, they're beatable, of course. Um, Where? But, but they are a challenge. The reason being is because they don't have any real weaknesses. They can keep the ball in play, um, possession. They can keep you in your half. They can create and combine around the box really well, uh, as you saw in the goals against Saudi Arabia. Um, and they can counterattack extremely quickly. So that's that's a range of strengths which makes any opponent really difficult. They've got all of the different aspects. The difference is if they get us in our half, which they will at times, we can actually counterattack them better probably than we can against France. Because you're trying to counterattack a French team who've got out some of the best young defenders in the world, right? Um, whereas Peru aren't that. So we should be able to create more, even if it's on the counter, getting quickly in behind, as we did sometimes against uh, the Czechs. And we will create some things in that game. We need to be careful with Guerrero. He's, he's completely changed them as, a, as an issue now. That's a fact. I mean, you know, the, the, it's a big issue for the fans, of course, that, um, you know, Mila Jedinak and the Danish captain, I think, I'm not sure if mm. the French captain was involved, but they signed a letter to yep. say we support Guerrero playing in the game. Mm. Personally, as an ex-player, I think that's fantastic. I and Australia, Australia mm. should be very proud of that level of sportsmanship because we don't see it a lot now. Look what happened recently in the cricket and so on. You know, Australian sport is really having a bit of a, um, a crisis of... Um, of this area, sportsmanship. Like, what does it mean to us to to play on the on the world stage in all mm. of our sports? You know, and are we are we the type that want to take every advantage, even if unfair, or or are we the type that say, well, imagine if that was um, imagine if that was Trent Sainsbury, or if that was Aaron Moy, mm. or if that was Tommy Rogic, and that had occurred? I don't know the specifics of the case, but I think it's an extremely important case because what our our PFA and FIFA Pro were saying is, for whatever reason, it's unfair. Um, we're not presiding over the case, so this is not about saying it was or wasn't. It's just saying, if it was, um, then do we want a player, even a key one, of another country to be treated as fairly as we'd expect our own? Yeah. I thought it was a really good moment. I say, well done to Millet and all the players. Does it make them a much more difficult prospect? Yes, bloody hell, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> okay. We're sorry to see that. I wish it didn't. It does, but fantastic job. And I, and I think... We, we want to be fair in our sport, but hard, and, and well done to everyone. Yeah, and Unfortunately, he's a hell of a player, and <laughs> he's a hell of a goal scorer, and it gives us a huge issue. It does. He's a, he's a, he's a monster of a striker. Check out, too, just on uh, social media, the Danish players introduced the National Choir to welcome Peru back to the World Cup stage. After Fantastic. 36 years. What that a, is yeah. unreal. You know, that's just, just great stuff, yeah. What are terrific. we doing? But these are the moments of, of, of a World Cup <laughs> yeah. and at a tournament and, and a football that that's we brilliant. actually love. Yeah, and exactly. it's what makes our sport that's so right. unique is that it is global and that you have the support from all corners of the earth. Mm. Um, yeah, and and it, it is a fellowship, right? Also that's between right. the fans and between the players and mm. so on. Hard on the field, friendship off it. That's what it's about, the world coming together. Mm. Fantastic job. It'd be nice if we were to do, you know, something. And just on that, where the soccer is playing um, Hungary. Uh, on Sunday's our final game. And I don't know. Um, I suggested that they might want to, but it'd be nice if something happened for Les there. Absolutely. I agree, 100%. I think people don't, maybe, hopefully they understand, but Les wasn't just an icon here. He was a very important person he became over in Hungary mm. because he's one of their most famous emigrants um, who became something in a different country and they, they're very, very proud of him. So yep. it'd be nice if there was just a nice little gesture prior to that game. I Let's agree. He, des he deserves a fitting tribute there also. Um, World Cup favourites. That's been a big topic of conversation. Uh, we discussed it uh, the other day on our live Twitter show, but Bash, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Who are some of your top tier favourites? You know, after I know it was a friendly, but after seeing Germany the other day, I'm... I'm I'm really worried. I'm I'm worried because they that's not that's not Germany the way they normally prepare for a major tournament and some of their recent forms have been a bit dicey. I think Brazil are clearly the favorites for this World Cup. Okay. Yep. And I think Spain had a hit a bit of a hurdle this morning but they'll come good. I think they're the logical favorite. France could do something very serious at this World Cup, but I think Brazil are the favorites.
Well, the reigning champions have been a massive talking point in the lead-up to this tournament. Of course, Die Mannschaft are being listed as one of the favourites to back up the crown once again. And our very own SBS producer here at the World Game, Nick Stoll, had the chance to catch up with SBS reporter David Strillich to find out what we can expect from Jürgen Löw's side. All right, so joining me is David Zrilich in Germany right now. Zrilla, how are you, mate? Good, mate. How are you? Very good, very good. Uh, you've been in Germany since uh, July, I believe. How has the last 12 months gone for you? Well, it's been uh, a bit of uh, a difference. Obviously, um, football in Europe and especially in Germany is, is at, at uh, you know the, the top, top level, so... Um, to be able to access that, you know, all the information that you get, the um, you know, not only in the academy where I am, but also uh, with the professional team and the experience that they've had, uh, obviously playing Champions League this year, um, and, and just how quickly uh, the club has um, risen to where it is today. Now there's a whole different expectation where they're actually expecting to be into, in Champions League every year, and it's just um, just that cutthroat world of uh, European football. Uh, to experience that firsthand, and even in, in the academy and, and the youth teams, um, the pressure is on all the staff and, and the coaching staff to make sure that they're producing players and winning winning uh, games. So it's, it's quite a difference um, when you compare uh, to the challenges that we have in Australia. But certainly, um, coming here as in terms of developing as a coach was was the best decision I could have made. Yeah, nice. And and how did your under seventeen team go this year? So we're still playing. We've got another game, our last game uh, on Sunday. We're currently first, Ooh. and uh, if we finish first, we win our um, section of the of the Bundesliga, which is broken up into into three areas or so three three parts of Germany. And then the team that finishes first in each part plus one of the, the three areas, um, three zones, they have uh, two teams qualified. They go into a semi-final and then, and then the final to win basically the German championship. So, yeah, we win on the weekend. We're in that semi-final and then hopefully we go all the way. Okay, beautiful. Good luck with that. Um, let's talk the German national team. Obviously, the reigning champions winning in Brazil 2014 also won the Confed Cup last year in 2017. Also, I believe, uh, Euro under-21 champions. What's the kind of general feeling, the general confidence around the national team? Do, does the media, do the people think that uh, they can go on and win it again this time? Yeah, there's definitely confidence you know, all around Germany at the moment, um, well, not just at the moment, the last few years with this success of the national team, um, youth teams doing well, um, but also, you know, just that so many titles have been coming the way of Germany and they've been producing so many players. Um, so I think the confidence is there with Jürgen Löw. Um, you know, he's just extended his contract. Uh, I think everybody is very, very confident in him and um, clearly win. When you've had that much success and winning titles, uh, world champions, I think that um, there's a very good feeling again going into this tournament. Um, you know, they breeze through their uh, qualifying group um, as they normally do. Um, they won all their 10 games, they scored 43 goals, they only conceded four. So, um, a very, very strong team. Um, won the Confederations Cup last year as well. So, it's just it's a very, very good feeling. And even in the training camp now, a lot of the players, um, nobody's sure who's going to be playing. There's a lot of, there's been a few scuffles in training. You know, there's a hard kind of challenges as you know, the players really going out and knowing that um, they have to impress uh, in this training camp, in the couple of games that they have before um, they play their first game in the World Cup. So from that point of view, um, I think everything's going well at the moment. They've had a couple of trial games against the German under-20 side that where, where they were mimicking uh, their next opponents coming up in the World Cup. So um, from that point of view, they're very, very happy. I think most most are looking at whether Manuel Neuer uh, will be fit to be included in the squad. If he will be included in the squad, then, then Jogi Löw has said that he will be playing, um, which is really interesting for uh, Testegen, considering that he's had a great season and <laughs> Manuel Neuer hasn't played at all. So that just shows you how much um, his standing yeah, is in the national team. But uh, like I said, very, very positive at the moment. Uh, what about, uh, so Mario Gotza scored the winner against Argentina in the final of 2014. He hasn't made the 27-man squad. 
Uh, someone who has, Timo Werner, plays at Leipzig. Uh, looks like he'll probably be the starting number nine for Germany. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, Timo Werner is extremely fast. Um, very, very quick. Um, you know, young player. Um, he's always, uh, obviously, with the pressing system that Leipzig plays, it has that dynamic up front where he's able to get in behind defences, run at, run at defences, um, 1v1, very good. And just his speed uh, gives opposition uh, a lot of problems. Uh, he didn't have as good a year this year for Leipzig um, as he did last year, but I guess that's um, the same for pretty much the whole team. A um, lot more expectation the second year, obviously playing with Champions League as well. And the team also played a little bit differently Um especially in the in the full-on pressing style that they showed in their first year. That wasn't evident at all times in the second season. And um, uh, I guess that's maybe why there's been a change in coach and change in some of the things that are happening at um, at Leipzig. But in general, um, Timo Werner, when he plays for the national team, s- scores regularly. Um, he's, one of, he's now a first-choice player. Um, so I think his rise in the German national team, and also for Leipzig and in German football, has been... Uh, pretty outstanding, um, and I see him um, taking a starting place in the German team when they when they play their first game. Okay, beautiful. All right, well, Zrilla, we'll see you uh, in Russia. You'll be part of SBS's uh, World Cup coverage, and uh, we look forward to seeing you then. Are there any teams, Foz, that are overrated? Uh, well... The only one I think has been, but I'm not sure in this World Cup, has been Belgium, mm. um, who they got to a ranking of number one, right, uh, because of their work in qualification and so on, but it wasn't because of their work in major tournaments mm. or going on to actually um, be clearly the best. They didn't create anything new. They had a good generation of players and they were a very solid team under Vilmots, but really I thought nothing special. Um However, they are in a good uh, place at the moment because Martinez has got them back, I think, with a certain level of belief. Um, the players in that squad now yeah, also far more, more experienced. That's right, mm. yeah. Um, so, therefore, and, and also the reason they're no longer overrated, they were, but they're not anymore. So, anyway, in other words, everyone's backed off. They're mm. not being talked about a winner mm. anymore. Mm. They've just been talked about a really strong group of players who might be able to do something. So, I think that's fair. Um, so the answer probably is no at the moment because people understand that France may not win also, even though we all know they have the potential to do so. Um, and that's because they also lost the Euros at home. Um, and Brazil need to be rated. It's difficult to overrate Brazil because Chiche has done an unbelievable job. Because if you remember in 2014, it was, the country was in crisis. And the football was National in catastrophe yeah. almost. And, and they vacillated between trying to play their Jogo Benito and not and Dunga and this and that. And this guy's come in and got them really well organised, believing, they, and they're variable. They can press, sit, they can do whatever they want. And they, of course, have the individual quality. And then you've got Spain, who I, I reckon Lopetegui's done an unbelievable job. And mm. um, he's actually, in some ways, taken them forward because he's brought in Asensio, he's brought in Isco, he's brought through this new generation. You've still got an unbelievable defence and you've got, you know, incredible style of play. So some of the older ones have drifted on, but he's got brilliant players come in. So the answer probably is no. Argentina, where do they fit into this? Um, I, I, no, I noted, no, noted Messi's comments about we're not one of the... Like, he's trying to mm. almost deflect all the pressure away from Argentina because of the expectation in mm. 2014. Look, they were touched up by Spain. I don't think Messi played in that recent friendly. Uh, Haiti was a different story. It was at the Bombonera. It was a weak opposition. They absolutely dominated them, um, as expected. They've got an, a lot of quality. It's just whether um, Sampali's an interesting coach, like he's a terrific coach, uh, we know that, but whether he's going to get this group to play the sort of football that they are capable of playing in his, in his version mm. remains to be seen. I think there were great signs late in qualifying that they were on the same page. I just don't know whether everything... The stars are aligned for Argentina. I'm not quite sure. And so much of that, sorry, Foz, is underpinned by, of course, Messi. Uh, There was an article up on the World Game website also in which former Real Madrid goalkeeper Francisco Buyol slammed him. He gave him a a bit of a shellacking and he said, Messi is the big lie. Barca have great players around Messi. He is not as decisive as you think. Who said that? Buyol, former Real Madrid goalkeeper. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> just stop just reading the article. <laughs> pretty, I can see the look on your face. Uh, it's a very damaging quote, I will say. It's a strong quote. Um, but uh, yeah. fact or fiction, I don't think I need to ask you that question, but it's, it's a big a deal. But quote. It's a stupid one, but yeah. it's strong. <laughs> it's very strong, but is mm. there any kind of validity in it? Because, I mean, when we've seen Argentina in years gone by, you also look at the quality of their, of their squad yeah. and you think that they should potentially be doing a lot better than what they are. Um, well, but no, how I think it's rubbish, quite. The yeah. thing about it is, but that's a lot of discussion at the moment. It, it, that sums it up. You know, strong, stupid, but, but that how makes far headlines, can, right? That's but how the far can media. Argentina go in um, this tournament, Foz? So the thing about it is what Messi did largely was really carry them to two major finals, right? And if Higuain... Higuain had a 1v1 against Germany. Mm. It wasn't an outstanding game from either team. It was in many ways a typical final. But... Um, I thought Boateng did an unbelievable job in that game on Messi mm. and, and most defenders in the world couldn't have. Did Messi not turn up? No, not at all. Um, did he create the one for Thingy? I think he might have. I can't recall. For the... Higuain that he missed? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, OK, if that's Burashaga or that's Valdano when uh, Maradona created it, then they score and they win. Mm. Yeah? So did he lack leadership in, in getting them there? No, he didn't. Um, was he able to win the game alone? No, he wasn't. Um, but he's to say that he's not decisive is just ridiculous. Um, however, I think their cycle might be over because those that group of players is getting older. Di Maria is not what he once was. No, you know, and um, and it's also they've got problems because their under twenties won about five or six tournaments um, in a sh- short space of time. That was Aguero, Messi, this generation, and that generation's on the wrong side of thirty now, or just turned thirty. Um, and um, all of a sudden, they're not bringing through anymore. They're not winning the under twenties. Okay, that's changed now. And they and that and if you win under twenty World Cups, the history says that you're going to have a good chance to win a senior one. And they had it, and that might be behind them. Whereas Germany, a bit the opposite. Spain brought through all the generations, and they won it. So when your moment's there, you got to take it. And they didn't take it. They missed it. And um, you can't blame Higuain just for one chance. But you know, he really didn't. When he he had he had multiple moments. Um, that he just wasn't able to do in those big games, unfortunately. He had a few in the Copa America. <laughs> that, that's oh, what I'm talking about. That's God. what I'm talking about. Right? Oh. So he just, it was horrible in those games. Yeah. Um, so that I don't think, um, you know, I don't see them as being able to get back there again, although Messi is fresh and that's the good news for them. The other thing about Sampaoli is that in many ways, I'm not sure Argentina actually is the ideal for him. Because what, what Messi and Bielsa, uh, sorry, uh, St. Paul and Bielsa and this, this type of coaching needs is really more soldiers than stars mm-hmm. because it's a game based on immense intensity. Oh, yeah. And so you need everyone to run all the time. That's why it's perfect for Chile. That's, hap- that's why I happen to believe it's perfect for us. Because we are warriors, we are um, soldiers, if you like. Physical, it, have a lot of pace in certain but, but areas. also culturally, um, that's probably a bad analogy to war. What I mean by that is I'm saying that when Australia plays, even if we have a big star, he is expected to give every bit as much to the team effort as everyone else. We're not a country where the star is given um, extra considerations. And that's what Chile were. Alexis Sanchez worked in, ex, mm. as hard as Bosajor. He right? worked his so ass off. So Sam needs that. And, and I'm just not sure whether, tactically I like him, but I'm not sure whether he's going to get the work ethic. And what he does, he likes to play. When you have a team that can work at that level, you can be very open and attacking and aggressive. Mm. But if you have two or three players who aren't interested in doing that level of work, all you become is just an open team who can concede six against mm-hmm. Spain. Mm-hmm. Right? And you know, you know what? You look at the players he's grafted in since he took over when he first came with the team uh, to yeah. Australia. Yeah. He's, he's turned They're over workers, a lot of yeah. younger players, and yeah. that, not, not all of them have worked out. So I think he's still and trying to work. that's the reason it. why. Yeah. Because he, he can't have a team of really high-quality players to just play. And Argentina used to have that a bit. So... Mm. I don't know if he's the one to get it out of them in this World Cup. The only good thing for him is that Messi's fresh and therefore he can definitely make the difference. Well, his voice is synonymous with football commentary right around the globe. And here at SBS, we are absolutely delighted to have Martin Tyler join us as part of our on-air team for the 2018 World Cup. A short time ago, our producer Nick Stoll, who's back at it again, had the chance to catch up with him to find out what we can expect once everything kicks off. Martin, we're 10 days away from the tournament. How are you feeling? Well, it's the same as every tournament, really. I think this is my 11th, and uh, it's a privilege to be asked to go. I think that's the first thing to 
take into account. It's as much a privilege for commentators to be selected by their various channels as it is for the players to be selected by their various countries. So um, excited, um, trying to uh, just work out what I need to know when I need to know it, <laughs> uh, what sort of pre my preparation time there is between the games that I've been given. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same feeling of anticipation and excitement um, and a little bit different to the last couple because the last couple have been in the Southern Hemisphere and have been long journeys for us from up here uh, in the uh, not quite frozen north but you know what i mean uh, and russia is um, is a little bit closer although uh, hopefully it'll be um, it'll be a welcoming um, uh, tournament uh, i think they put a lot of work into it and i hope that we can just concentrate on the football which which is all i ever go there to do yeah um this is your 11th world cup and you know, I and, and so many other Australians have grown up listening to you commentate uh, on SBS. Uh, you've been uh, with SBS since 1990. Can you just tell us, like, how that relationship started and how it's kind of gone on and blossomed over the years? Well, I think it, looking back on it, it maybe it was meant to be. Um, I did my first three World Cups for ITV, uh, who taught me my trade in, in uh, the United Kingdom. But then in 1990, early in 1990, I, I decided to move on into the, the new world of um, satellite television, we called it then. I suppose it's a digital age now. And in deciding to do that, I forfeited my place in the ITV World Cup <laughs> broadcasting squad for the 1990 tournament. Um, it was a, quite a sacrifice, but it was, uh, I think, career-wise the right move. Certainly it's panned out that way. And... I had been in Australia in 1988 working for the ABC on the um, Bicentennial Gold Cup, I think it was called, the, the tournament that celebrated the Bicentennial with, with some football. And uh, it was an exciting competition for Australia because they beat Argentina heavily, <laughs> well, and uh, got to the final play Brazil. I'm looking at a picture actually uh, on my desk here of me holding up my nine-month-old son, in the uh, the Sydney Stadium that staged that final, um, we came as a, a very small family unit. Um, and in that time, I bumped into two people, Les Murray, who I had met before, and Dominic Galati, who was a uh, mover and shaker at SBS at the time. And so when, when I realized that I wasn't going to get um, any work from the UK on the 1990 World Cup, um, I just phoned Dominic and I said, look, I'm available. Is there any chance I could help you out? And... Um, came back uh, about three or four days later and said, mm, don't know about helping out, but can you do 39 commentaries? <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, you're speaking to the right guy. <laughs> uh, but a lot of them, of course, were done off tube, but I, a, a good third of them were done from the, the, the grounds. Um, and that's how it started. Actually, we did do, I think we had done the 1989 Champions League final. I think I'd, I had done something for SBS before that, so it wasn't a cold call to Dominic. And and from then on, you know, it's been a pleasure. The, the company that I've worked for here since 1990, Sky Sports, never have the rights for these tournaments. They always have a lot of domestic rights, but because of the, um, the free-to-air rule, um, the World Cups are still on ITV and BBC here in the UK. So I'm usually available, um, ready and willing. And hopefully able, but that's always uh, always that always depends on the next game, not the last one. <laughs> mm. and, and what was it like, I guess, working with uh, Les for all these years? Because this will be the first World Cup in a long time. Obviously, mm. that, uh, unfortunately, Les won't be a part of our broadcast. Mm. Uh, yeah, Les and Johnny Warren, of course, who we lost earlier, and both wonderful football men, um, great uh, broadcasters, great passion. I think they the the key element in all of this is to be really obsessed with football you know i think that if you have that um the rest sort of falls into place you have to love it it's quite demanding going to a world cup sort of traveling um you have to watch a lot of games and if you if you in any way weaken because of that you're not fit for purpose really and les and johnny were out in front in those particular qualities and brilliant to, to work with and and yes it, it will seem very strange being part of a world cup um without les we had a big send off for him as a broadcaster in um, in 2014 in 
in Brazil at the end of that tournament and obviously he's had a, a different kind and a much sadder send-off in the intervening period. Just on all all the matches that you've seen all the years, uh, is there any particular moment or moments that stand out to you or that you'll never forget? Uh, anything that you immediately think of when people mention World Cups? I don't know. As an Englishman, we always think about 1966, don't we? And, of course, I, I didn't broadcast that. I did go to one of the group games just as a fan. I managed to get a ticket. Um, but they, uh, the, the wait goes on for England, and we maybe touch on that a bit later in this conversation. But um, I think I think simply just being at the games, uh, obviously the viewers and listeners will have, they'll have their own memories that I'm associated with. But... As a commentator, in truth, you're always looking forward, not back. And um, I, I think to, um, you know, to to answer the question, the most important game I've ever commentated is Russia v Saudi Arabia, because that's the next <laughs> one, and, and I've got to get that right. Otherwise, you and I won't be having these kind of conversations for much longer. Well, we have no doubt that you will get that right. Um, let's look ahead, and let's talk about, I guess, the favourites for this World Cup. So, I guess... It seems like you have Germany, the champions. Uh, Brazil is one of the favourites. Spain is also up there. Who, for you, is there any particular teams that are standing out and for any reasons? Well, I, I don't like to be a pundit. We've got really good people like Fozzie mm -hmm. to you talk about these things. I, I'm, I'm more a describer of it. But uh, obviously there's some of the, uh, the preparatory games have steered us away a little bit. Germany just lost to Austria. I watched um, a fair bit of Spain against Switzerland yesterday, and Switzerland did very well, and, um, and that, that finished as a draw. Uh, you, even the game I was at on Saturday, England played really well in the first half against Nigeria and looked maybe even a, a contender, but uh, the second half showed um, everyone's right to keep their feet on the ground in, over here. Uh, France looked good to me, and they, they've got a lot of young talent. It, it's not just about um, the, the individual skills. It's about the tournament mentality, which is why Germany are usually so good. Um, I, I'm off tomorrow to uh, an, an England press conference. All the players are being put up to the media, which is, uh, in modern days, it's, it's been unheard of, really. Uh, but if anybody asks me about anything, I just say, look, my return ticket is July the 16th. I know I'm coming back on July the 16th. You've got to think that as well. And, and that's to all, all of it. It may seem an odd thing to say, but, um, you know, sometimes teams can go, well, we've done as well as expected or maybe even a little bit better than expected. Then nobody tries to get knocked out, but sometimes there's a cushion of uh, maybe a, a week, extra week or so on the beach, you know. Mm. Um, so I think the teams that have the mental toughness to to say look my return ticket is not open it's definitely july the 16th or the 15th is the final they can normally get out after the final <laughs> although um you know it's it, that that that's um that's, it, for me it's the 16th and, and i think for the players it should be that and i hope the team that probably the team that wins it will be a team that's had that kind of mentality as well as obviously some extraordinary ability to be world champions yeah and and let's talk about england uh, it, it's interesting going into this tournament. It seems like expectations are lower than they have been for previous tournaments. But in a way, maybe that can help Gareth Southgate's side. Uh, how do you feel the expectations are in England and will possibly this team, can, can they outperform them? And also, I guess, if we could talk a little bit about the kind of controversy surrounding Raheem Sterling. Well, I think the low expectations is a is a fair description. Uh, I think if England had gone on to win uh, playing in the second half on Saturday as well as they played in the first half, that might have just altered a little bit, but they didn't. And it was um, not exactly reverting to time, but it was it was a good contest, actually. Nigeria showed what they can bring to the World Cup as well in that second half. Um, the, 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 if the expectations are quite low, I think the, the squad probably have got the potential to... Um, to go higher than that. Funnily enough, I'm just preparing the Costa Rica game on Thursday, and of course, the only time England played Costa Rica before was in 2014, and they'd already been knocked out after two games. It was a real low point in the history of English football that, that tournament. So they're going to do better than that. I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. But um, and it's interesting you've asked about Raheem Sterling because uh, he. 
he's probably dominated the headlines because there isn't much else going on. Um, his, his personal issues with the, the t- tattoo is, I think, a personal matter and not one for the media. Being late for um, the get-together when he'd been given a bit of extra time off is definitely one for the media and one for Gareth Southgate, and he's had to field some questions on that. Um, I commentated, he, he, he was booked for simulation on Saturday, but at full speed, it was a it was a difficult one to call. I think the referee did get it right, but um, players who run at full speed do end up on the deck quite a lot, uh, and it, it's a hard call, and they have to make sure this thing doesn't happen. We've got VAR in the World Cup. This is going to be a, a very different element for me. I've only... Um, been involved in it in, in, in probably 10 games over the course of this season. So I think that's going to be a determining factor, particularly when when players can be evaluated at half-time and maybe not allowed out for the second half because something that's been missed in the first half. So um, I know all the, all the national coaches are talking to their players about this. So that, I hope that won't be the determining element, but it, it will certainly change the perspective. Um, can you tell us about uh, Gareth Southgate? He's a bit obviously had a, a long career as a player and a, a shorter career as a manager with Middlesbrough in the late 2000s. But can you tell us a bit, a bit about him as a manager? Because I guess in Australia, a lot of us are unfamiliar with him as a manager. Well, he's shrewd. He's very personable. He's impeccable, really, in his um, in his dealings with the, the media and I guess with the players as well. Um, the the criticism probably uh, um, in club football and going into the England job is, job is, is a, he might be a bit too nice, you know. He is he's um, a, a really charming guy, um, very intelligent, very erudite. And will he rant and rave when it's needed? Maybe not. Maybe that that is an issue that, that hopefully he won't have to deal with. But. Um, It'll be a big test for him. I mean, the qualification for England has always been pretty straightforward, and, and, and Gareth certainly was able to take that on. He got the job in unusual circumstances when um, the chosen successor, the Roy Hodgson, Sam Allardyce, um, messed up, and, and, and Sam would use those words himself as well, I think, and so lost the job. And um, he uh, he's taken it on, Gareth, with a, a sort of poise. He's, he's a company man, really. He's an FA man. He's been at the FA for a lot longer than the tenure of his England senior team management. So uh, he's got a lot of a lot of support around. He's, he's not contentious in any in any way. He's not controversial, but I think he's showing strength in the way that the team have built up. Now he's got to show the strength when it really matters in the tournament. Mm. And and finally, uh, just before you go, I kind of wanted to discuss with you, I guess, the art of commentating because, you know, we've, at SPS we've been doing these hundred moments uh, and so many you're featured on and there are so many times where you seem to have a unique ability to capture exactly the feeling within the stadium that moment to bring it to us at home and I just wondered, is there anything, uh, any, I guess, techniques or maybe advice that you give to young commentators where it's important maybe to let the moment play out or speak over it. Is there anything you kind of, uh, any strategies you have to bring us those moments? No, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very kind of you to say this. and I would counter by saying that the most of the World Cup moments I've been on for SBS, <laughs> I don't think there are too many other contenders. Um, but what I would say is it, it, it's about reacting to what happens. It, it's, it's certainly not anything that you plan. Um, my advice to young commentators is straightforward and simple, and it seems so obvious, but uh, it needs a bit of explaining maybe. Watch the game. Um, there's so much you do in prep that you prejudge maybe, and you might be talking about a tactical formation that gets um, changed after three minutes in the game because of something the opposition did. So watch closely the game. Be aware, I guess, of of what the result means, what it means to individual players, um, I had to, it wasn't a, a classic moment, but on Saturday, Gary Cahill, who looked as though he was out of the Chelsea team and then out of the England team, got back in, got back in the England team, got back in the Chelsea team two weeks earlier and lifted the FA Cup and then scored a goal after five minutes against Nigeria on his England recall. You know, you've got to be able to say, well, it's a special moment for us, for, for the person involved. That that kind of stuff should come to mind. But no, it's 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 nothing you can plan. It's nothing you can. Uh, you can do much more and say, look, I'm thrilled to be 
in Russia representing SBS and all the Australian fans who I know take the game really seriously. Uh, and together, hopefully, we'll have a really enjoyable four and a half weeks. Well, Martin, it is an absolute honour to have you as a commentator on SBS. It's an absolute honour to talk to you today. Thank you for so much for being a part of our preview podcast. Uh, for everyone at home, you'll be able to uh, listen to Martin and watch on SBS's games. We have a match every single day. Martin, thank you so much for uh, joining me and uh, enjoy Russia. Thank you, and give me a call while well, we're in Russia and we can maybe update all this. Um, one final question. I want to talk more broadly about this particular World Cup and, and what this means uh, for Russia, Bash, and to the Russian people culturally. It's hard to say, given <laughs> so many le- levels of um, propaganda we see from that country. It really is hard to peel back all the layers of culturally what it means to Russia because they're a very complex nation. I would say that immensely proud to, to, and they will be ruling it with an eye fist as far as security goes. We saw that in Sochi for the Winter Olympics. What it means for Russia, they they don't have a great team at the moment. I think their 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 national team will struggle to get out of the group. It'll need divine intervention. I think they'll be proud that they can put on a a faultless World Cup because that that that's the type of nation they are. And I think um, with their leader, it's the sort of leadership he likes to to. Uh, expressed to the world. One final question on the VAR, because this will be the first World Cup that will implement the technology. Uh, Foz, it could go either way. It could be a massive disaster or it could be just what the tournament needs. Well, yeah, I don't know if it's what the tournament needs, but I don't know if it's what the game needs. So um, it could be a disaster, definitely. I, I hope that it's not overused and so on. Um, otherwise, it's going to be a major talking point um, and take largely away from the football. If some of the moments that happen in the A-League happen in the World Cup, it's definitely going to be a massive disaster. <laughs> um, but if it saves a couple of key moments, then it could be it could be good. Um, the thing about Russia is, the thing about the World Cup is, this is going to put a spotlight on Russia like nothing else can. Like, it's OK to have the Winter Olympics, but half the world, including me, don't give a crap, right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, the World Cup, everyone cares now. So this is the spotlight on Russia that Putin thinks is going to be a positive spotlight and he's doing everything he can to, to make that happen, whereas much of the world is saying, well, no, we actually want to really have a look at who you are and what you're doing. The big issue around this World Cup, I think one of the talking points would be about this in Qatar, is about the human rights in relation to the FIFA mm-hmm. World Cups, mm-hmm. and in, and that'll come in a spotlight in. I think that's important. So a lot of the Russian population will want to use this to get their message out, and that's great. And we should ensure that they can, in part, get it out through us, right? That's right. Because the World Cup's not just about football. It's not just about Rogic and where the Moy plays and that and that. It's about the country and the problems they got. And in future, um, a country like Russia will struggle to get a World Cup, I hope, because we'll have human rights um, engineered into the bidding process and you won't be able to hold it if you have a number of the issues that are still occurring within Russian society. So it's a great chance, actually, to talk about it. And we're looking very forward to talking about all that and so much more come the tournament. It all kicks off on SBS from the 14th of June for the opening match between the host nation Russia and Saudi Arabia. You can go to the World Game website for all the uh, broadcast and telecast details when you need to, but, of course, it'll be one of your main hubs, your one-stop shop for all the news and videos and opinion pieces coming out of Russia. Myself and Foz are off on Wednesday. Bash, you're off on Friday. We absolutely cannot wait. Thank you to you, Foz, and to you, Bash, for your company today. And uh, we're looking so very forward to this tournament and to having you, the Australian public, join us for what should we'll be an, incro- an incredible ride. We'll see you from Moscow, guys. Thanks so much for your company. But until then, until we get to uh, Moscow...